Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, where we're discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. I'm your host, Nick Peters, and wherever you are and however you may be listening, thank you. This week, we are joined by a special guest and friend of the pod, Chris Drogi. Now, we're discussing today something very near and dear to our hearts and hopefully the hearts of all of the listeners out there. So we're discussing the value of critical care pharmacists, why we are needed and what we provide. So Chris is a clinical pharmacy specialist in critical care, practicing in the medical and surgical slash trauma ICUs. Additionally, is the residency program director for the PGY2 critical care pharmacy residency at UC Health, the University of Cincinnati Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. He also has an academic appointment as an adjunct associate professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Cincinnati James L. Winkle College of Pharmacy. Chris, really appreciate you joining us today. Honor to be here, Nick. Thank you very much on uh, such an important topic. Like like you said, I hope not just to us, but to anybody who would listen in to the podcast for sure. Now, before we get into anything of importance or value, I, I have to stop and we have to talk about Skyline Chili. So for the non-Midwesterners <laughs> listening, the statement I just made may be confusing. So instead of classic chili where you have beans maybe some meat veggies oh it's really good and when it gets cold kind of chili season what skyline chili is is it's generally a sauce that's poured over kind of spaghetti or hot dogs so what are your thoughts on skyline chili or, or gold star do you like it i i have to i i ask almost every single person i talk to from cincinnati because i'm fascinated by it yeah, it's certainly a Cincinnatiism. It's it expanded for sure, and, and and driven by Skyline itself. It is. It's definitely different than your customary chili, like you might have your your, your grandma make in the winter to warm up with all the beans, as you as you mentioned. It's a little bit more ground meat. Uh, the the recipes are big deals, like they're locked away in something short of like a a federal you know bank, so nobody can touch <laughs> it, and that's no joke with the families um, for both Gold Star and Skyline, but think about a finely ground beef with a lock and key uh, recipe put aside that is put on top of a, a generally fairly small hot dog on a bun uh, with, and, and the staple other additions to that are onions and and just cheddar cheese, shredded cheddar cheese. And it's been around for, for decades, 100 years. I mean, it, Skyline itself uh, was, was really started here by a, a Greek immigrant family. Um, that brought some of their history with them. The the person who started it and, and the family that started it actually worked for another Coney place. Like they were already established in Cincinnati back then, and they were up on Price Hill, uh, which is a, a small city here in Cincinnati that overlooks the skyline of Cincinnati. And it just took off from there. There's probably four or five different uh, branches of of Coney places around here, and then a lot of mom and pop places. Thankfully, it's expanded. I think it's all the way down in Florida and stuff now. I like them. Um, I'm not. I'm certainly not eating them right now, but it, it, they're dangerous. Nick, I'll tell you that because it's not just the cheese cones. They they have different. Uh, they have three and four ways and five ways. And every time you add a number, you're adding another ingredient to it. They're absolutely delicious, and it's easy for somebody my size to sit down and before you realize you've taken a breath, eat one or two or ten of them. Now, do you feel like it's a and you absolutely love it or you absolutely don't love it and there's really no in between or is that just like an outsider's perspective? Eh, that is an outsider's perspective. I've, I've heard that quite a bit and, it, and it's interesting. I, I will tell you, I, I just, again, I don't look at it as anything unique. I like it, but I've had plenty of friends from out of town come in. They're like, what, what is this? Well, I, I don't understand this. Um, and, and who came up with this concept? And what, why, why do I have the Skyline Chili now in my local grocery store? Where did this come from? 
Um, it kind of is a dichotomy. I'll give you that. There are people who are just lukewarm. Uh, but I will tell you, I've seen some folks who at, the, at least claim not to like it, especially in college, because they become kind of popular joints, you know, late nights when you're studying and stuff along those lines. And Absolutely. I've seen people certainly evolve to liking it more with continued exposure. Okay, so it's a little bit of a scale. All right, I like that. So our topic today is about pharmacists. So one thing that I thought would be kind of really fun is um, for each of us to talk about our, you know, favorite or maybe most memorable portrayal of a pharmacist in kind of mainstream media, like movies or TVs. So I'll let you start and then we'll, I'll, I'll kind of run, uh, run my idea or my favorite afterwards. Yeah, I, I love this. I mean, I, for, for me, I will, I will flat out admit I am a huge Family Guy fan. That said, so the, the most uh, the, the pharmacist I've been exposed to the most is probably probably Mort Goldman. Um, the thing is with Mort, he you know he's kind of almost the antithesis of what I would look for most of us you know, and especially in critical care. You know, on the grand scheme of things, I'm already too generalizable. We're Type A, we're OCD, we we tend to be go for it. Mort, you know, he's a hypochondriac. He's a little bit of a put you know able to be pushed around much. So I I don't know. I, I couldn't link to him, but I got to tell you the one that I like and it pairs with uh, with his significant other in the hut i want to take you back to the princess bride all right miracle max oh, um, and if it's yes. a little bit non-traditional yeah right but you know this is somebody who it captures the true spirit of critical care pharmacist he takes wesley right the main protagonist of the movie from mostly dead remember he's mostly dead to alive and he basically does what is a medieval uh acls almost right wonderful breath technique wonderful breath techniques to wesley um and then he does this very non-usp 797 or 800 compliant compounding skills and essentially revitalizes and rescues the movie because he saves wesley and to me he just kind of embodies um what is vital to our profession and that's success i mean he was wise he's knowledgeable a little bit humorous he, he works it in there and he and he, he provides solid advice to guide wesley to hopefully the positive outcomes associated with the movie i i think pharmacists are, are what i look at the alchemist there as the uh, the main reason why the movie ended up being so great that is such a perfect answer and it's so funny you say that i i read an article um, a, a, maybe a week or two ago that they're looking at maybe remaking it. And that just seems almost like criminal. There are just some, some movies that are timeless and just classics and we should just kind of leave them alone. That, that, that story, that analysis though, kind of talking, you know, the, the pharmacist, you know, resuscitating basically that's, that's so perfect. I, um, my, kind of where I was leaning, I'm a, I'm a big Larry David fan. And so there's a, for, yeah. for Curb Your Enthusiasm fans, you know, there's multiple of these, um, but one that stands out is you know, Larry is dating a physician and she writes him this note and he can't read it. And so he takes it to his local pharmacist to be able to interpret the handwriting and, and pass back the message. So, you know, other things follow it, but I, you know, those are, those are episodes and things that, that stand out. The perfect examples, and we'll definitely post some clips and, you know, we want to hear from your favorites. So at pharmacy to dose on Twitter, or Instagram, you know, we'll have some, some polls and some interactive things and, and kind of play some clips and things. So this is, so this is great. Now let's get back to the real reason that, that you came on today. So for myself and some of the younger pharmacists listening, you know, how did we get here? You know, what is the history of pharmacists practice, practicing within critical care? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I mean, I'll tell you, Nick, I, even outside of pharmacy, I, I'm a bit of a history buff and I'm a quote guy. I'm one of those quote guys. I love looking at quotes. And I, I thought about this a little bit and I asked myself, what is one of the quotes that I really like about this tone that actually will not just really help answer this question, but facilitate some of the discussions longitudinally throughout the podcast. It's one by uh, English writer uh, Anthony Burgess, and he says, it's always good to remember where you come from and celebrate it, but to remember where you come from is, is part of where you're going, because there's a lot of momentum right now. So it really is important that we take a second to say, hey, where, where have we come from, and where are we are, and where are we going? Uh, and I will tell you, I, I have to give a nod to Brad Boucher, I believe it's Brad, that, uh, that wrote this, uh, this portion of the BCCCP materials for ACCP and does a great job. But when you begin to think about it, critical care as a whole is fairly young, like and not just critical care pharmacy, but critical care pharmacy as a facet of that is probably one of the youngest. But I mean, this is going back to like, you know, Florence Nightingale. When you think of Florence Nightingale in the 1850s during the Crimean War, 
Um, we had the, the first NSICU, which was really the first recognized ICU in Maryland in the 1930s. And then it began to grow from there. I mean, critical care as a specialty wasn't even recognized until 1986. Critical care pharmacy, however, arguably really started in the 60s and really picked up in the 70s uh, with the first pharmacist formally recognized as assigned ICUs in, in, in the 60s. Uh, the, the Night Floor Project, I would encourage any uh, listeners to look this up. Um, it was started in the mid-60s by UCSF and Moffitt. And I think it really did begin to catalyze that direct patient care and perhaps richer interactions, not just with patients, but with interprofessional colleagues. Some names for people to look up and some, and some names for people to forever admire if they don't know them. William Smith, Robert Miller, Richard DeLeon, and Joe Hirschman. They were the ones who really began this remarkable path in pioneering. And what's interesting is that it wasn't necessarily in the ICU. It was in a surgical unit. And they were doing med recs. And it's funny because even when you look at this, they were saying drug histories. And now, of course, what we're calling is medication reconciliation. But that helped expand into code blues and parental nutrition. It got the ears of pharmacy schools and it got into curricula therein. Uh, and it really did begin to blow up, if you will. 1970s, no pun intended. Um, 1970s, uh, it really started pharmacists were in a bunch of different types of units. Um, organizations really began to recognize them everywhere from Society of Critical Care Medicine. Um, that's where you started. You begin to see APHA break off into ASHP and ACCP, um, some of that evolution therein. I mean, if you think about that, interprofessional groups really helped. I mean, SCCM, you know, you're looking at a, an organization that started out as, as 20, 30 members in 1970, and now it has over 16,000 pharmacists in over 100 countries alone. So I will just say this to put things in perspective, Nick, because I looked at this anticipating that this could come up. Um, you know, as somebody who's an RPD, some interesting things to consider. Critical care pharmacy residency standards were first established in 1990, but it was actually first described by OSU, uh, Ohio State. I had to give them certainly a rep as a, as a, form, as a fellow Ohioan, um, but it grew. I mean, I, I looked at the ACHP online directly, directory, and there are 153 programs listed right now. And I think what's awesome to keep in mind is not all of those programs only have one resident. Mine, for example, has had three, and, and it's been my entire tenure as well as next year. So the, the history is rich, and it has, it has given us a profound platform to continue with this momentous uh, growth that, that I think we're seeing, and, and a lot to thank for some of the, the pioneers and, and the folks that we, we should all be looking up to who even are, are still practicing today. I mean, building upon the quote that you said, right, if you don't um, learn from history, you're bound to repeat its mistakes. So I, I think those two kind of tie hand in hand, and it's really – to me, it's almost insanity that it's been from what you described in the early years. It's only been 50, like 50 years, basically, to where we are now, which is like progressive, you know, a lot of, you know, at the forefront of some of these issues. So it's really kind of remarkable the, the, the growth that's happened. Now, I have to ask because I am a quote guy as well. So like in your office or anything, do you have like a quote board? Um, I used to. Um, I I, I, I have to admit, some of this stuff was taken down at one point. It wasn't a quote board. I, I had a little corner of uh, of a, a, a basically a backdrop I have behind my computer that had some quotes on that meant stuff to me, and I ended up having to take some of that down because in the grand scheme of things, we found out that it's not JCO compliant. Um, so I, I had to remove it because my office is technically in a decentralized pharmacy. Um, but I have, I have some stuff in Dropbox and documents that are um, categorized. Again, it comes into my own type A OCD, but I have some categories of quotes for different situations that I really like. Um, and I use them in everything to, you know, to, to letters I might write for people, um, to, to occasions like this. I, I've even done it in other talks. I'm, I'm going to use a, you know, right, things, uh, or I'm spelling and quote could very well come up, um, in this talk about unknown unknowns. Um, and you never know where a good artillery of, of quotes could really come into play to emphasize a point you're trying to make. But I, I wish I still had that. Um, unfortunately, it's just not as, not as possible as it once was. Jayco strikes again. <laughs> so we're having, right, right. we're having this conversation because I think the majority of us non-hospital administrators agree that we need more ICU pharmacists and obviously recognize the value that we bring. But new positions just aren't being created as quickly as we would all like or, more importantly, need in some situations. So if you were tasked with you know, justifying why pharmacists are needed or more pharmacists in specific areas are needed you know, as members of the ICU team, I'm sure we could talk for hours about this. But if you, you know, boiled it down to one sentence or a phrase, you know, what would you say? 
nobody warned you that I'm not known for my brevity ending. I didn't tell uh, you that the sentences <laughs> needed to be com- they can be run-ons. That is that's a yeah. <laughs> that's that's okay. This one might have a few commas in it, but this is this is a great question. It's a tough one, but I I really do believe, especially having had the opportunity to be in some of these forums, you might be told, "Give it to me in one sentence, um, or even ten words," which I think would be very difficult. I've I've heard that in the past. Here's what I would say. I mean, as a service recognized as essential by interprofessional colleagues in the ICU, I, I would say it comes down to value, safety, and clinical impact that we provide in reducing everything from mortality, reducing cost and waste, improving outcomes, and reduction in medication-related errors. And I would leave it at that in the grand scheme of things. But let me hit you with one more point. And this is something that I think could be profound for folks who even are well-versed in the literature that we should read every day. There has been data out there that suggests that the presence of one of us on rounds improves patient care to result in a number needed to treat a six. Tell me anything in the ICU that has a number needed to treat a six. So just something to ponder to add on to that sentence, if I could. I'm sorry if that was cheating. You know what? With that awesome statement, cheating is officially allowed. Yeah, that that's amazing. <laughs> and I wanna I wanna hone in on one thing you said there because you mentioned value. You know, why do you we why do you think that pharmacists still have to justify our value in terms of new positions and things? Because I think all of us, when we're when we're in the hospital and we're in the unit, we feel the value and the team recognizes our value, right? Like why are we still needing to justify this? Some of it comes down to what you mentioned about maybe, you know, the hospital finance personnel, perhaps the business side of this. And as I said, I I didn't think I was going to get through this without referring to the old Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld quote about known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. So if you don't mind me, I'm going to paraphrase this one a little bit. And here's the the thing, Nick. The evolution of what we do and what we've been able to do and what what I believe we're going to be able to do is very momentous, very positive. But there is that persistent unknown unknowns, right? The things we don't know that we don't know. And not necessarily us, because I don't doubt that many of us can go up to nursing colleagues, physician colleagues, and other interprofessional colleagues and say, hey, we're looking to expand and get another FTE. Will you write me a letter? I've never been told no when that request has come up. But it's, it's to those who don't completely understand what we do or services we can provide. And this can be seen in hospital administrators. It can be seen in uh, certainly the financial realms for sure. So there are components of perception for me that I personally found that, you know, you look into attending physicians who've never worked with a critical care pharmacist in their previous practice. They're very accustomed to us being there, maybe for, you know, facilitation of medication delivery. They're not aware that we are actually bona fide critical care drug experts and really maybe even critical care experts. Um, I think a lot of us try to go much deeper than just the drug and get deep into the physiology and et cetera and what we can provide. So I will say this, Nick, and I would love to, to hear what you think. I think that there is a constant challenge of metrics to capture our impact. And, and some of the recent data uh, have, have certainly suggested that. It's, it's, it's not the most tangible um, or money-assignable uh, you know, metrics out there. So I try to think of it from the financial and business side of a hospital. It's easy to capture things like dose dispensed by a central pharmacy. You know, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, you look at the EMR maturity, the monetary side and charging has also greatly improved. So, you know, for us, we generally decrease drug use. We're actually decreasing a not uncommon metric that a lot of hospitals use when they think of just the panacea of pharmacy versus a clinical pharmacist versus a critical care pharmacist. So, you know, I think, you know, you look at this and this could be stuff like looking at what we do on rounds, protocol development. Um, and, you know, you could try to assign a value to these interventions that people have. They're out there in the literature, but it still falls short um, when speaking to those people who really try to balance the business checking account. I really think those are some of the core issues and why we have to continue trying to justify our presence and certainly more so um, justifying growth within one's department and service line. So do you think, per, you know, when I think about this, you know, I think a lot of it comes back to perception, like you mentioned. And I think it's, you know, in my opinion, a, a lot of the, you know, maybe smaller areas or, or, you know, the, you know, when you work with maybe um, positions or teams who have been together for a long time, you know, I'm wondering if it's the, you know, the perception of, you know, the pharmacist kind of being, 
you know, in the central pharmacy, you you can only talk to them via the phone. They say no a lot versus, you know, the decentralized pharmacist that works as a, you know, functioning member and valuable member of the team. Like, is that, what do you, do you think, do you agree with that? Yeah, to a certain extent, I think there's a role. I mean, from an interprofessional standpoint, and in particular, our physician colleagues or, or prescriber colleagues, I, I do think that there's also the perception that we tend to focus on correcting their mistakes and to control costs. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, there are times where even, even folks who I've worked with for years, if I walk up with anything other than a smile on my face, they look at me and say, oh, gosh, Chris, what did I do wrong? Nothing. I'm here to join on rounds or maybe even just to walk up and shake your hand or give you a high five or see how your day's going, you know? And for me, it, it you know, while I appreciate where this comes from, I think sometimes not the, the, that perception also paired with the fact that we're kind of that sheriff mentality. You know, don't touch that albumin. Don't touch that indexin, that alpha. Don't even say the word. It's almost like whispering in the name that can't be said from movies. Um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I, I do think you can kind of overcome some of that easily with just a few interactions. Um, and again, I, having interdepartmental support will call that as well. Um, and, and while I do think that, yeah, to, to your question and point, some of these, what I would call hopefully antiquated, but maybe not because they continue to persist, but even though the antiquated perceptions exist, uh, I think more and more interprofessional colleagues are recognizing us as multidimensional critical care practitioners and advocates and are, are beginning to appreciate us for the resource that we can truly be. And I, where I see this is in other organizations is pulling us into even things up to and through certain legislature components uh, of, of, of certainly, you know, large regions, maybe not, maybe even states or beyond. Uh, and it does help, in my opinion. I don't know about you and, 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 and where you are in the country, but we're starting to see more colleges open up where young healthcare professionals are actually trained together in certain scenarios. So you'll have nursing schools, pharmacy schools, medical schools, et cetera, and they all have some form of broad interaction. And I think that's all helping get around some of these perceptions. But I do think that, yeah, you're pointing out those perceptions are uh, they're alive and well, but I truly hope that there is a dilutional component to it with, with time ongoing and some of the initiatives that, that our groups and pharmacy as whole have, been, have really been executing over the last several years. That's nothing that I've seen out here on the East Coast, but that sounds like an incredible initiative, actually, and something that'll, that'll really help kind of emphasize multidisciplinary you know, involvement with the team. So in the year 2000, ACCP and SCCM, they released the position paper on critical care pharmacy services, you know, also known kind of in, in the profession as the white paper. So maybe just an overview, but what was the purpose of this guidance document and, and what does it say? Yeah, no, this is, um, and it's exciting to talk about this because, again, for people who are listening, like, I, I do want to stress that we're getting close to the next one, very, very close to the next one. Um, in, in fact, there have been opportunities for many of us to, to provide feedback on the great work that uh, a, a phenomenal panel of our colleagues have been working on for an update. Um, and, and maybe, maybe we'll have a 20-year anniversary to see it on paper, or hopefully it gets accepted on a public uh, e-public hub or print or something in 2019. That'd be great. The, the 20 th or the 2000 paper, I, the way I would describe it, 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 at the time, it was the most formal attempt to really try to capture the scope of our practice and the services that we provide. And, and really, it began to provide a pillarized structure of several core components. So you've got clinical, academic, and education paired together, research and administration. And these pillars trying, and again, formalize the, the, the mission that we have. And then what they did was provide a great construct or fame, framework that took, you know, skills or services we should be providing and then dividing them into fundamental, desirable, and optimal. And, and really, when you think about it, at the time, this was mind-blowing. And what it really did was stress dedicated time to ICU patients, um, you know, for us, with, with fewer commitments outside the unit, really stressing perspective evaluation of, of drug therapies. Um, and, and just to give folks an idea, you know, areas that were emphasized as fundamental alone, right? So everybody should really be doing this, you know, adverse drug event evaluation, communication, right? You talked about communication, how it's important. Even back in 2000, this was considered a fundamental function of what we should be doing uh, with interprofessional colleagues, you know, documenting, getting in there. That's, that's an art. And then you got to get in there and document drug therapy, education, collaborating with JCO um, and committee involvement. And then that, that again, is fundamental pie in the sky. You get into optimal, that's where you are getting into 
facilitating, you know, informed decisions and discussions with families around therapies, you know, teaching and involvement in ACLS and getting into teaching and training otherwise, doing pharmacoeconomic evaluations, research, right, writing grants, getting published um, in, in peer-reviewed journals. And that's just to name a few. I mean, it's a remarkably good, remarkably robust construct to provide directions from anywhere to a, you know, a, a, a a smaller, less than 100-bed community hospital to a four-figure bed, large, you know, system, academic and or otherwise, um, it, there is relevant material that applies to all of us in, in equal fashion outside of where the resources may play a role. So one thing I want to highlight for any like potential residents or, or early career pharmacists looking at you know looking at this document, I remember I was a I was a critical care resident and I um, I looked at this document. And I remember feeling extremely overwhelmed and thinking, how in the world do all of my preceptors do all of these things all the time? And so one phrase that I overlooked, and I'm not sure if it was just me or not, but um, a single pharmacist cannot perform all of the fundamental activities on all patients every day. So when this document talks about pharmacists, right, they talk about the team. And so that was one thing that I just wanted to emphasize because when you look at this, you're like, well, I can't be at work for 18 hours. <laughs> now, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, and it's with any of these components, you got to find a fine balance in maybe areas that accentuate your strengths. You know what I mean? And because, I mean, if you try to spend too many plates, they're inevitably going to fall and break your feet. So there is, there, there is absolutely no way. There's absolutely no way. And there's going to be certain areas, whether you're working with, you know, teams of other pharmacists, um, whether you're working with decentralized versus clinical pharmacy specialists, um, and, and, of course, working with your interprofessional colleagues, there are going to be certain areas that, that you certainly have strengths in and others that others do. There's there's no way. And I've been pleased to any trainee or young professional or even somebody who's been doing it 20 or 30 years, uh, don't stress yourself trying to do all of those things. That's not the point. The point is to provide some structure and framework to it and at least maybe consider certain areas and thoughts of, of uh, where you can work on um, or, or emphasizing, you know, back to your question, Nick, about how can we justify our stuff, our, ourselves. Maybe you can find areas that emphasize what you do well and bring it forward to those folks who want to know why we have to be there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The document does a good job of putting into writing kind of all of the things that we do, maybe not on a daily basis, but I, I think a lot of us do do these on a semi-regular basis. Now, this paper was published in the year 2000, and it's now 2019. So, you know, in the year 2000, I was playing Snake on a Nokia phone, and now I have a computer in my pocket. So how relevant still are most of these recommendations? Obviously, we are greatly anticipating and looking forward to the new document but until then you know we'll we'll talk about the one that that's published that we that we have available to us yeah absolutely i and it's interesting you, you bring up iphone versus uh or i shouldn't say just iphone or whatever smartphone you might have versus versus what we had back in 2000 i mean yeah despite all the advancement in technology and even some of the other pursuances we're having like provider status and everything to be honest with you nick i think people would be surprised how relevant the majority of that the recommendations there really still kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, and, and really, just what is still optimal in, in perception back then remains optimal today um, in the grand scheme of things. So I would say don't be surprised if you are somebody who's interested in getting critical care pharmacy, if you are you know, early into your critical care pharmacy training or you know, early in your critical care pharmacy career, you can go pull that paper and still find a, an absolute wealth of information because if anything, as it's written, is still relevant. And if you feel like even as it's written may not be, I can promise you the intent behind what was written is still very much so relevant. Now, is there anything that stands out in terms of things that you, you know, maybe strongly agree with that are still there or things that stand out that maybe, well, time has passed, this may not be as fundamental or desirable as, um, as it used to be? 
to be honest with you, overall, it depends on how you look at it to a certain degree, and it comes to one's interpretation. I, I think the quality and services that they identified as fundamental are key. And and for me, I think you kind of have to maintain that softer language, and you know, versus using required or anything like that. Um, I really agree that they should all be you know ultimately implemented or supported one way or another, or attempted perhaps at the very least. Um, I, I agree and try my best to do some of the desirable, desirable and optimal components in my practice daily as well. But as you mentioned, if you can't even if you can't execute all the fundamental, good luck doing all the optimal, and certainly the or is certainly you know well the desirable and certainly the optimal. Um, so I, I really do strongly agree that anything denotes that we should be advocates, that we should be there within the professional teams to optimize patient outcomes and safety, that that will never go away. Um, whether disagree or maybe just challenge, um, implementing some of the recommendations, even even if you think about it, almost 20 years later, it, it, it's still tough for some of the other reasons we've talked about. I mean, whether you look at support for both the current status and future growth to meet the demands, um, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, one thing that's for sure is the, the growth in critical care and the recognition thereof, and per, perhaps and likely the complexity of some of the patients we're taking care of has certainly changed in 19 years. So I, I just think that when you look at the implementation of some of the suggestions, that it is it remains a substantial challenge for all of us. So on the face challenge, I mean, on the face of this, there aren't any that I necessarily truly disagree with or would want, you know, massive changes. I just don't feel fully, fully confident that routine implementation can be expected. Um, and again, they don't necessarily suggest that, but you look at that and it can, if anything, it, it still gets a little bit intimidating, kind of to the point that, it, that you were mentioning there. Look at that and say, how in the world am I supposed to get to that desirable and optimal realm for all of that? And again, it's just a matter of governing your interpretation and saying, actually, these are the components I really want to do and really want to execute in the grand scheme of things. Now, earlier you mentioned kind of the, I guess you'd call them pillars or kind of the foundations where you talked about, you know, patient care and clinical things, teaching, research, administrative kind of being the, the four big kind of pillars. So you know, is this where we should be kind of give, dividing ourselves and, you know, a 25% split on, you know, in each of those? Would you say it depends on your practice side or are there some other factors that may play into how your time is able to be divided up? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I will tell you, I think I will say, again, at the very at the most superficial uh, component of this, Nick, we have to be multidimensional. Uh, why? Because it'll help us adapt. It'll help us, again, I think, have other opportunities to, to show our work. Um, so I will tell you, I generally look at it as a tripartite mission, and I have to admit that I stole that from my, my mentor, Eric Muller, if he describes it. Of, of at least there's three core with patient care, teaching, academia, and research, but you're not going to be able to avoid the administrative duties, and you shouldn't want to because that's a lot of great indirect impact. But when you look at it as far as dividing it and saying, does it just look like a, you know, a pizza pie where you cut it into equal sizes, that's difficult. And, and I do think one of the areas that makes that, that the highest dependency on that is, is your practice site um, and where your role is. I mean, whether you're faculty versus non-faculty could drive some of that. I mean, it's interesting that this question comes up because it's, I don't know about you, but our evaluation season are literally just opened yesterday. And I have to go through and I have to talk about certain areas for me. And I will tell you, um, in the grand scheme of things, I, while I work in an academic medical center, medical center it's non-traditional. So what I mean by that is I'm, I'm not primary faculty. I'm adjunct, as you described in the description. Thank you very much. Uh, but when you look at my job description, it's actually interesting breakdown. Um, and hear me out here, but 50% patient care, 20% indirect patient care. So right there, you could argue that, that at least for the expectations of my institution, 70% of my day-to-day -day is with patient care. And then it, it evens out and ends out with 15% in educational activities and 5% in project and research, project and research. So that would be like other duties such as organizational involvement, perhaps clinical coverage for my colleagues, um, and having familiarity in my patient population. Now, as far as like cutting the pie that evenly, I will tell you, the reality is, and I think this is for many of us, there's no way. And, and some people get, get, I drive them nuts when I talk about this, but we routinely exceed 100% every day. So if you were to ask me to really fill that in, um, and I was able to go above 100%, I mean, I would say, you know, for me, it's like 90% patient care, 50% teaching and residency, 40% research, um, and 20% administrative. And I will tell you, I know I threw out those numbers quick, but if you, if you keep on going back and forth and listening to it again and again, you'll find out that those numbers add up to 200% because sometimes you do feel like you do the work have two people, but it's because I think we all love what we do. Um, 
I will tell you this, Nick, to reemphasize and refocus on one of the parts you brought up. I think for some of our folks and colleagues who are faculty, having plenty of friends who do so, um, I, I just, I personally think for us who are non-primary faculty, and even really for anybody, it's it's tough to not, you know, designate. I mean, 25% of patient care, they're the reason why we're here day in and day out. The, the doors are open, and, and we have the honor of serving them while they're at some of the worst points in their life. Um, so I think the beauty of it is trying to intertwine those other core com- those core components and pillars into that direct patient care. Because, I mean, that gives you a wealth of teaching and research, right? But you're still doing patient care, direct and indirect. Same thing for the research side of things. Um, so I just I think in the big picture, going back to the discussion we just had about the white paper, that's why so many of those fundamental components of the white paper previously discussed, I mean, they're around patients, and it's because they should be the core focus um, and probably the largest pillar of what we do day to day. Again, that's totally opinion. And you know, you bring up kind of what my breakdown is, and I am, you know, I work, you know, at a smaller community hospital, and so. You know, my job description probably says 70% patient care, but realistically, like if we talk about today, it was probably 95%. And so I think it's very easy for us as pharmacists, right? You know, just inherently we're very ambitious, right? You talk about type A. So I think a lot of us will kind of compare ourselves to, you know, what others are doing. And at the end of the day, you may be reading a paper and it's like, wow, how is this person able to do all these things, write book chapters, get published and all that. And I'm obviously, that is that is absolutely not meant to take away from those who are doing that, but a lot of them will get built in time to do that, right? Whereas, you know, a lot of us who are not faculty, we're squeezing that in whenever we can. And so, and, you know, patients will always come first. And so the first thing that goes, right, are some of those optimal or desirable activities. And I, but I think that a lot of those are, you know, the type of activities that help, you know, the, your advance, the, um, not necessarily your brand, but you're, you know, you're putting, you're putting really good information out there, whether it's, um, going, you know, giving presentations, you know, writing peer reviewed literature and things like that. So I, I, I love that point that you made about it all comes back to patients. Cause I, I reiterate that fact whenever I have students and residents that they are the primary concern. And if things come up, we will treat patients first, always. Yeah, and, and I will say, Nick, even folks, no, no matter where they might, they, they might divvy their time, the beauty of it is whether you're writing that book chapter, you're, you're publishing what, what could even be your 200th peer-reviewed manuscript, it's all there to at least try to enhance others' understandings of how to take care of patients or how to not take care, perhaps, of patients. So it does. And no matter how you look at it, all of this should come together and, and really emphasize or, or be circular with the focus and nucleus of, of the patients. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So let's bring back something you talked about earlier. You know, you mentioned this image of the sheriff, right? And you kind of, you walk up and everyone's like, oh no, what did I do? Nick, what, what, what are you coming to tell me I did wrong? And I think, you know, specifically probably our, our antimicrobial stewardship colleagues among many others could, could probably relate to this, but how can we avoid being you know, seen as the sheriff, you know, the image of us always pointing the finger. And you mentioned kind of, um, you know, politely, you know, or I was going to say politely correcting mistakes or having the, you know, physicians having that perception that we are coming to, you know, tell them or, you know, the perception is that we're telling them what they did wrong. And I don't think that's how any of us feel when we practice, but sometimes, you know, perception is reality. Yeah, no matter no matter what, uh, no matter how strong your prescription and glasses are, there's a reality to that. I, I will stress this outright, Nick. There is no easier right answer to this, or answers, frankly. I think it does come down to approach, sort of how you, you, you insinuated there. Uh, it's really you know, when you want to make that intervention, um, plan forward how you're going to approach that interprofessional colleague. Be collegial and encouraging, not accusatory. I have been surprised over the years, and I've been doing this that long. I've been only been doing this 11 years. 
I've had a fair number of conversations with medical students, even, let alone residents or fellows or attending physicians, that, you know, they're serious when they say, you know what? What happened is I had one, what I'll simply say, less than optimal interaction with a clinical pharmacist. And ever since then, man, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to do that again. And you guys, you guys just seem to be, you know, the, the authority when it comes to, well, you know, hold on just a second. And, and yeah, I think that is where you have to address that mentality as soon as, as soon as you can appreciate it, uh, where that, oh man, you're here. What am I doing wrong? Cause I, I will tell you, I don't know about you, Nick, but a good majority of the time, it's kind of actually jovial or joking, but it's, it's almost that passive uh, awareness that it actually is real. Um, and it just means that you, I think it does give us an opportunity to, to have a, an additional opportunity, rather, to connect with that practitioner or the team as a whole. Um, I mean, if possible, you really got to make sure you explain why you're having that conversation, suggest or you know, making that change in the order, or trying to find an alternative therapy. It could, it could be something as simple as saying, hey, that patient's extubated. They weren't on an H2RA or PPI at home. Let's, let's stop it. Um, to something like you talked about with antimicrobial stewardship, right? I mean, maybe maybe you're trying to stop that neuropenem vapor bactam order for a cephalazole and susceptible Klebsiella. Um, that's something every day, and it's just making sure that they understand why, that it goes beyond just no because you're a pharmacist. Um, and because you, are, I mean, we all, we have pressure to, to control costs. No doubt about it. That's one way that we help justify our positions to a certain degree. Uh, but but why that antibiotic, for example, minimize resistance, reduce costs, um, and then from there, yeah, the, the, the bigger challenges on, on larger scale things might be requiring identification of a physician champion and really having a calculated collaborative effort instead of meetings to come up with a unit or even system-wide change um, for bigger things. You know, hey, we want to get our albumin use down. We want to get our fill-in-the-blank therapy down. And that's where you identify someone who, whether it's a representative of the unit you primarily work in or perhaps pan-critical care, yeah, you sit down and you, you have that very collaborative meeting, and that really makes some of those interactions that you mentioned here go a heck of a lot better, in my opinion and in my experience. And, and the only other thing, you know, this is something that I that I will always emphasize, you know, especially to students and residents, is that sometimes you have to pick your battles, right? I remember when I was a second-year critical care resident, you know, there was, there was an, um, an attending who put everybody on a PPI. It's like the IC was stressful. So I remember being frustrated, kind of talking to my preceptor. It's like, well, you know, you can die on the hill of trying to DC all of those, or you can develop relationships with those providers and physicians to where you were able to collaboratively work and tackle some of the more bigger, potentially, you know, life-threatening issues and things like that. Because, you know, in my mind, it, it and especially as, you know, a lot of us in these... It, as pharmacists, we don't have prescribing power. So sometimes it doesn't matter how smart you are. If people don't like you, that can hold you back in, in one way or another, potentially, you know, for better or worse, you know, unfortunately, but that's, that's something that uh, we, you know, deal with, I'm sure you deal with every single day. Yeah, and the beauty of it is, and that's an excellent point, I, I have had that conversation with, with learners and trainees and my residents more times than I want to count. Tomorrow's another day. Tomorrow is another day, and often some of those lower-hanging interventions that ultimately maybe not have huge associations with potential harm, but like you said, just don't need to be there because they're not supported. Just just do it the next day. Focus on the, the bigger, uh, you know, the bigger things to tackle. No doubt about it. Oh, I'm going to steal that. Tomorrow is another day. I love that. So we've meant, and you've mentioned kind of throughout there are you know examples and probably not probably there are tons and tons of examples in the literature of, of pharmacists kind of demonstrating values, but are there certain ones or um, things that stand out in terms of, you know, published studies or things that, you know, we kind of like to highlight and talk about? Uh, there's, there's a lot out there and there's been some recent material, um, but I, I guess I would have to think maybe back to historic to a certain extent. There's more than people realize. I will say that. I mean, do, do you agree with me on that? Completely Nick? agree. When I started doing the research for this, I... I guess you would say a little overwhelmed at the sheer number of things that you kind of look at when you do the PubMed or the, the lit search through it. Absolutely. But exciting overwhelmed, oh, right? Oh, That's the, the best of type of overwhelmed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I look at this, I mean, Nick, these are just, and I'm, I'm going to scratch surface here, so bear with me. Um, certainly improvements in thromboembolic and infarction-related events and both clinical and economic outcomes. That was a, a paper in pharmacotherapy in 2009. Um, they actually showed you know, higher mortality, bleeding complications, ICU length of stay, and cost when we weren't there. 
All right. So I started off with the other, but when we weren't there, um, there've been several in reduction for drug, drug interactions, AD prevention, um, an improvement in infectious disease. Cause you just talked about microbial stewardship. Um, but here's an infection and in, in, in improvement in infection disease, morbidity, mortality, and cost in critical care. I think that paper was in 2008. Also similar findings of with us not being there minus the whole bleeding component. And then some with really general improvements in protocol-driven outcomes, whether you're talking about analogous sedation and ventilator duration, glucose control, anticoagulation, uh, and I'm telling you, a host of others, hypertensive crisis management, resolving shock management, disease prevention, going back to stress ulcer prophylaxis, ventilator association pneumonia falls into that niche, um, culture follow-up in the ED, some more great stuff coming up there, um, code stroke, code sepsis, code blue. Um, really, trauma stat involvement. Somebody who works in, a, in an STICU at a level one trauma center, and, and being there for emergent procedural sedation and RSI. What is beautiful, and going back to that whole number needed to tree of six comment before, what has been nice is in most scenarios, the overwhelming, again positively overwhelming majority of, of situations with the literature out there, when we're involved, things get better. And, and I'm saying that in, in, in the most humble way possible. I'm just stating. The numbers that are there, the stats that are there to suggest our impact, and these are these really, again, just cover some of the areas where we have seen the, the positive impact, whether it be the, the drug management or perhaps even to a larger core of our patients, the critical care disease states themselves. I mean, numbers don't lie, right? You were, we're just talking about objective data that's published, so absolutely. And, you know, I can't say, I, I want to specifically highlight a more... Um, kind of recent one, the 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 great research kind of led by um, Drayton Hammond and Megan Reck, you know, talking about, you know, I think these are looking at, um, you know, the interventions and the value of pharmacists, you know, looking at both kind of the ED and the ICU. I, I think that, you know, huge kudos to really just everyone involved. And, and on these papers, you know, there are there are authors listed, but obviously, you know, the there are tons of other pharmacists and practitioners that participate, you know, it's obviously a group effort. So it's, it's well done to all. And so I think you know, kind of build, you know, going from there, how do we build on this already really great foundation of research and continue creating, you know, really high quality research studies, you know, looking at the positive effects or benefits of pharmacists that obviously will then help us talk to these hospital administrators and, and exec boards to, you know, fund FTEs. Yeah, no. First of all, I will say this. Anybody who's looking to venture into this, not so much the high-quality research studies, but when, as Nick and I talk about this, make a new folder on your desktop or Dropbox or whatever you might use that you can begin collecting these papers into, and it almost becomes a manifest of, this is why you need us, because there is a lot of rich data out there and more rich data coming. If you would, if you would permit me, Nick, just like we talked about history with the profession as a whole, you got to look at some of the history, like you mentioned, of, of what people have done. And, you know, outside of the wonderful advocacy with the white with the white paper in 2000, there's a lot of great stuff out there. And I am going to throw out a few names to recognize them. Rob, and this is not all-inclusive. Please do not get offended if I don't throw your name out there. But work that's been done by people like Rob McLaren, Ishak Lott, Bill Dagger, Gretchen Brophy, Brian Erstad. And I'm so glad you mentioned two other names because I warned Drayton that uh, I, you know, that we were going to be talking and that I would probably mention his work. But some of the stuff that Drayton and Megan, as well as the teams, I mean, you had Alex with you previously, if I remember right. Um, Alex was on one of those papers as well. They they are doing amazing work. Um, and that latter duo, when you look at Drayton and Megan, um, you know, their paper in pharmacotherapy earlier this year did a scoping review of intervention and cost avoidance between the two areas that you mentioned. And it really provided an abundantly necessary framework and an update in certain areas to capture what we do. And then they, they followed up with that in the Journal of American College of Clinical Pharmacy. With, and I'll tell you, more data are coming. Um, they, they've got tremendous momentum, um, really capturing the cost avoidance side of what we do. And uh, I encourage anyone who's in critical care, critical care pharmacy, to keep an eye out um, for their work. They're, they're really doing great stuff when it comes to, uh, well, many things, but certainly when it comes to the high-quality research of justifying us and, and the positive effects and benefits that we have. Uh, Nick, I'll tell you, I, I do believe an angle that's important is cost avoidance. It, it's crucial in helping justify, you know, why we need to be there. It, it, it's almost a metric in a sense um, if you can assign true objective values to something that we do. Uh, outside of that, I, 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 you know, continue evaluating, continue to evaluate where, you know, we're not, and, and are there are there deficits there? 
Uh, the beauty of it, uh, the beauty of this is that it's, it's kind of hard to do prospectively, which is which is a, a challenge um, because you, you you can't not have us there, right? Because you could argue that we're standard of care. It would actually be deleterious based on many studies for us not to be there. So it's it's kind of a, uh, a rock and a hard place, right? If you really want to do it, do a prospective study where some of us are there in one unit, not another. But, you know, really the way we do things are you're, you're not supposed to omit something you has been shown to have a benefit. So we have to be withheld because of our benefit. There's some irony there. You know what I mean? It's it's unethical to take us out of the unit for a research study. Is I mean, isn't that like one of the best justifications? Like literally, an IRB might not let this happen to study this. Like I, I it, that almost speaks more volumes than than we could in a sense. It, crazy, actually. Like, you know, again, maintaining humility for sure. I still think it's important. I, I think, you know, as, as far as creating other high-quality material moving forward, maybe capturing impact and how we drive therapies once a diagnosis is there would be fantastic. It's kind of maybe the next step to provider uh, status in the ICU. Capturing that as an objective relationship would be super invaluable and just finding um, other ways to justify our presence in the hospital infrastructure. And then other organizations, too, they're doing great stuff with all of this. I hate to be generic and just saying stuff, but, I mean, there's, there's exemplary templates out there for groups to pursue um, and in the grand scheme of things, but it's pie in the sky materials. But I truly believe, you know, is this is something I gave some thought, man, it is, it is so cool that literally we could not be withheld by all technicalities because of benefits that we've shown in certain areas that affect most ICU patients every day in a very positive way. So you've mentioned that you are a history buff. Now let's kind of, take a step back from looking in the past and let's kind of maybe take a look forward. So where do you see, you know, clinical pharmacy and maybe just generally clinical pharmacy or specifically clinical pharmacy within critical care and the ICU, you know, where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? Oh, this is exciting growth um, and substantial growth. I mean, when you, when you take a step back and you look at some of the metrics about critical care, whether it's just in the United States or all across the world, you're talking about tens of thousands of people being admitted to the ICU every day that really you're looking at tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars in healthcare spent every year. I mean, you begin talking about higher amounts spent in an ICU in a year than gross domestic product for all but like 10 countries. I mean, let that sink in for a second. Uh, you know, whether it's critical care or critical care trained pharmacists, we're in extremely high demand. Um, there's, as I mentioned before, I don't know about you, but I did not expect over 150 critical care residencies. I mean, so, so all of that is there. So there's, there remains, and I'd love to see a resurgence in critical care fellowships. That would be great. Um, but for me, I, I believe, Nick, that we're just beginning to tap our potential. Um, whether that be in the area of research as well and efforts to validate our current efforts, like we just discussed, um, continuing to evolve and optimize patient care. Um, some of the collaborative efforts that are really going on by some of our colleagues, uh, they're extremely exciting to see. And I do believe that we're going to see higher quality research and justification of what we do. Um, I think our presence, you know, and, and this is this is kind of one of the longitudinal themes of our discussion. Our, our presence is certainly being more more appreciated in interprofessional organizations. I mean, look at SCCM, right? We, we were very fortunate to have Judy Jacoby as president. She was the, she was the first uh, pharmacist as, as president at SCCM. We have Sandy Kangill coming uh, down the road uh, following Judy Jacoby. Um, but for me, I, I think if I can maybe go just more, more broadly and looking in the forward, I, I believe showing how critical, now I'm choosing a very, it might it almost be like a soft law term, but a critical we are in the ICU is where it's going to be. The thought of provider status is exciting. Um, I do believe in the future we will be driving therapies once diagnoses, um, at least concrete differentials, have been identified. I truly believe that. Um, and, and look at it as growing into a complex critical care pharmacotherapeutic stewardship. You know, we talk about antimicrobial stewardship. Imagine having a critical care pharmacotherapeutic stewardship. I think that that's there. Um, I want to paraphrase another name that, that you shouldn't be able to get through a critical care pharmacy talk without mentioning, which is Joe Dasta. And uh, Joe, in, in 2006, he wrote an editorial for Annals Pharmacotherapy. And please forgive me because I do I did write this down because I want to get it um, as close to, to, to accurate as possible. But what he stated was roles and responsibilities will expand to include ensuring the accuracy and applicability of clinical, economic, and pharmacogenetic drug information. The phrase clinical pharmacist will be replaced by ICU pharmacotherapy knowledge manager, which goes back to my statement, perhaps, of a stewardship opportunity. And I do think this leads to exciting opportunities around, you know, maybe perhaps reimbursement 
um, and, and give us give us much more obtainable, tangible, being a very key word, mechanisms of hospital to capture our direct metrics and involvement. I mean, one can hope. And then I'll tell you, lastly, um, I, I don't know if it's time to open this Pandora's box quite yet, but I, I'm very excited to see how genomics and proteonomics and microbiomics will continue to enhance our understanding of intricate critical illness and help us as critical care pharmacists evolve. I mean, I think 10 years from now, some of these components, we're going to be doing patient-specific pharmacotherapy, critical care pharmacotherapy, and that's where they almost will need us to be a steward of those approaches because the algorithms are going to be very hard to capture in a clinical diagram that you might make. So you mentioned a lot of things there. So if you were able to maybe make one thing instantly come true, like your wish for what you know pharmacists could do or kind of advance, what would it be? You know, I, I did mention a decent amount there, but believe it or not, I don't think my answer has anything to do with what I just told you. Um, if I could, anything related to critical care pharmacy, if I could make a wish right now, it would be for a critical care pharmacist to be on every single interprofessional patient care team, period. Um, I, I think, again, we need to meet the demand. And if, if, I could, if I could snap my fingers, given, you know, Aladdin was just remade and the nostalgia is real, um, you know, but for me, if, if I could snap my fingers and there would be a, a critical care pharmacist on every single team, oh, man, how awesome. How awesome would that be? Um, it it, it kind of does highlight, and, and I know you and I talked about this a little bit way, way, way before we even you know decided to fully pursue talking in this forum, but it, it really shouldn't be whether we should be there. It really should be how many, and is there enough of us there? And right now, there simply isn't. So absolutely, if I could, if I could snap my fingers and, and poof, it would happen. It would be a critical care pharmacist around with every single patient care team where there's a critically ill patient who could benefit from my presence. I had to narrow down to two things in my mind when I wrote that question. That was one A, and one B was provider status. And I and I I feel like they're kind of linked in a way. But those those to me are I I think one A and one B of things that will just. And not only, you know, we mentioned, you know, we're, we're talking about advancing, you know, our practice in the profession of pharmacy, but, you know, bringing it back, right, just improving patient care, right? It's all about the patients. And that's those types of things we know would help. I, if, uh, if, if, the, if the minds to be are listening, want, want to get Chris involved on future, you know, pharmacy development programs, I, th I think you have some really, really great ideas. Um, so what would you say kind of, as our, as our last question here of, you know, what are some tips or tricks that you have either used or maybe routinely recommend to help pharmacists, you know, demonstrate their value um, as a trusted member of that ICU multidisciplinary team? Because sometimes it can be a little intimidating, right? That, that team can be big. Obviously, everyone is knowledgeable, but, you know, critical care, you know, specifically has really some of the, the top of the top in terms of, um, you know, knowledge, understanding, and, and everything that goes along with that. Yeah, this is, this is great. Uh, I, I will stress to everybody, and, and I, have to, I have to tell my, my residents this on a frequent basis, um, there, well, first of all, there's no, again, you might be tired of me saying this, there's no single or right answer to this by any means. There, there's an art to this by sure. I look at it this way, Nick, and I hope people can appreciate this. Many of us that are, that are pharmacists, we've probably had some pre-chemistry major, you know, uh, you know, track to our pre-pharmacy school. And I remember so much and when you talk about simple ionic chemical reactions that like dissolves like. And, and why I think that's important is, you know, we work, as you mentioned, and I think we've highlighted well in this discussion, extremely dynamic, high-risk, high-cost environments with very high demands that can change in a second, in a second, in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, if you're present, if you're present, show them that you're willing to invest the time in the patients and the operations of the ICU, people will begin to notice you and appreciate you in the grand scheme of things. So making sure you have a presence. Um, assuming that you, you know, you, do, you know, you do have departmental and hospital support, which I know can be a challenge for many, and, I, and I'm certainly not shying away from that. Um, what you could do is try to get beyond some of those basic and fundamental um, components of what we discussed earlier, and, and maybe get into some of those higher level of execute, you know, executions of daily practice, and incorporate those desirable and optimal components um, from the from the white paper, both the historic paper and the one forthcoming. I stress this a little bit, but I can't stress it enough again. Be present, always. Don't work patients up from their office. Work them up from the unit so you're visible. Conduct pre-rounds, 
and do a workup at the bedside. You know, you're preparing your, your patients, you're getting your data, you're able to ask your interprofessional members if you can do anything for them. It's an excellent way to get a face with a name and begin developing relationships. A parallel to that is being that resource. It only takes one or two calls for somebody to begin to trust you and know they can count on you and really begin developing a systematic approach to drug information. Questions that will host an appropriate turnaround time, I think that's huge. Providing literature behind your suggestions is, is a big deal. People do appreciate that, and it makes it a richer learning moment. Um, and, I, and I'll tell you, because I, I got a lot on this. I hope that's okay. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, don't be afraid. This is a big one. Because let me tell you, Nick, you, you talked about how, how really how smart and, and talented our colleagues are. This is key. No one that you work with, no one that I work with, knows everything. And what is super important when you're taking care of the sickest patients in the hospital you're in, you can't be afraid to admit that you don't know. And I already made that reference to the Donald Rumsfeld quote. I, I actually did it in other forums as well. But in critical care, there are more known unknowns and way more unknown unknowns than there are known knowns. So it's, it's really nobody will have every single one of the answers. It's okay to have to look something up, provide a more objective, informed response than to not know and give it a swing and a miss. I mean, that can kill somebody if you're not careful. That could be a sentinel event. Um, and I know it's kind of counterintuitive to the, the type A OCD perfectionist that many of us are. So I, I have to get this out there, Nick. Humility and hubris are two words that look very similar when you look at them. They share a lot of letters. But let me tell you, humility will keep you level in the ICU, patients safer, and should ultimately be expected on a daily basis. All right? I've been doing this for 11 years. I am humbled every single day and appreciate it because it's a good learning opportunity. Um, and then I'll tell you, other things, find ways to get into interprofessional education series, you know, whether it be a resident lecture on a random morning, a nursing, uh, like a quarterly nursing education series, a non-pharmacy grand rounds, get involved in ICU committees, um, maybe even up to and through something like TNT if you've got support. Um, but I, you know, I would imagine a lot of us do go to these that have kind of an ongoing patient care process evaluation um, and, and get deep into there um, and, and, you know, help make your unit better. And then I'll tell you, lastly, other items like research and publications um, can really help capture eyes as well as it displays an additional layer of expertise. And again, I know this one can be difficult. When I look at the optimal side of this, I think this is the hardest one for, for most of us by all means. Um, so I know it's not possible in all forums, but at least at bare minimum, having an informed familiarity with landmark publications regarding the care of the patients you're going to take care of is paramount because that helps strengthen some of those interactions that we've already discussed. So I know that I, I just had a lot of hot air come out, Nick, but you asked me a question that I have a great deal of passion. I don't know if you could tell, um, a great deal of passion around. Um, and again, you're not going to do all those, all those components at once. You, you got to work your way in as you get you know, as you get more familiar, maybe with the area you're practicing in, as you get more comfortable, um, et cetera. And, and, and really, I, I have found over the years, those several of those recommendations have really helped my residents or perhaps newer colleagues. Sometimes I've reevaluated them in myself, but they've, they've helped really hone the component that is the core of the question. That is just absolutely required listening, I think, for every single either, either trainee, student learner, resident, pharmacist, that information, a lot of that hit home. And so I stuff your sorries in a sack. That was incredible. Your that knowledge base and being able to kind of put into words, I think what a lot of us um, probably feel and may do, but you being able to verbalize it. No, that is what an incredible ending. And I, I, how are we done already? I, I feel like we could talk for hours on this topic. I feel like, I feel like we just got on the phone. It, this was, this was so much fun. So Chris, time flies when you're having fun, my friend. And if you add a little, if you sprinkle in a little bit of energy behind the topic and, and, and excitement behind the topic, it really goes fast. So Chris, can the audience find you anywhere on Twitter or Instagram or anything like that? You know, I, I, this question that I feared a little bit, I am not a big social media guy. Um, I hate to say that. I, I will tell you, if people are looking for me, I, I am on LinkedIn. Um, I do have an account there that I do check um, at least weekly. Um, and Nick, I will tell you this, please, I mean, feel free to post it up in the information. If people ever want to reach out to me, you can find me um, at my first name, Christopher.Droge, D-R-O-E-G-E at UCHealth.com. 
um, or the residency website. You'll find myself as well as all my fantastic colleagues there um, with our emails. And, and um, I, I, I wish I had a bigger presence. I just, I've never been able to hop on that train. Um, and and I, I fear how much of my time would go to it if, if I did it. But I do have some of those other angles um, for sure. And um, I, I would be honored to talk to anybody or, or have them further educate me on some of the stuff that we discussed today. Again, it's so important in these, in these regards, you know, to be humble. Um, and far, far be it for me, I cannot claim to be a content expert in this material today, but I, I will tell you this, I'm, uh, I'm an expert on my opinion at bare minimum. Um, and I certainly have a lot of, of, of energy um, in, in, in this in, invested in, into a topic like this. This is great. And I, I think we need to shout some of these messages from the rooftops so that everyone can hear because there's so much important stuff to, to dig out from here. So really, really appreciate you for coming on, Chris. Thanks again. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And let's get more of us out there. Could not agree more. And just another huge thank you to Chris Drogi for taking the time to join us. Also want to give a massive thank you to you, the listeners. This podcast does not exist without you. So please send me feedback, both positive and negative, as well as maybe any future guest or topic ideas via Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose. So that's T-O to dose. Um, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. On our website, pharmacytodose.com, we'll have some show notes that's going to include background reading, guidance documents. We're going to you know, post links to a lot of some of the articles that we, that we post in this discussion and much more. So honestly, I'd love to hear from each and every one of you. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.